Shall we pray? I'm sure we can cope without uh, some slides this morning. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you that whilst we don't know always what's going on, Father, thank you that you do. Uh, Father, thank you for this book of Galatians. Uh, Father, it's hard hitting, but Father, help us to understand what you would have us learn this morning. Father, help us to get closer to you, closer to the truth, closer to your son. And Father, change as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll leave these over here. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, we've been going. Well, Yorkshiremen have a reputation for straight talking, calling a, a spade a shovel, not beating around the bush, more sort of beating the bush, <laughs> being about as blunt as a pencil in a preschool. Uh, but if Yorkshiremen are straight talkers, then Tarsus, where Paul, the author of Galatians, is from, must be somewhere near Selby. Uh, I think, somewhere in North Yorkshire. Because as we read through Galatians, we're going to discover that Paul is a straight talker. Actually, I think I'm thinking of Tabcaster rather than Tarsus, but never mind. Paul is a straight talker, and Galatians is a straight-talking gospel. The apostle here does not mince his word. He really does tell it as it is. In Galatians, we're going to see some of the strongest language in the New Testament. And Paul, as he writes this, he's, he's genuinely emotional. He's shocked, he's flabbergasted, he's frustrated that churches that he planted not that long ago have actually ditched the gospel that he preached to them and instead have gone to a different message taught by different teachers. Now these churches are likely the ones we've heard of if you've read through the, the book of Acts before. We're talking about Lystra, Derby, Iconium. Those were the churches in Galatia, that would be a nice map on the screen, uh, but I'll let you have a look at it later on. These were the places that he visited and established churches on his first missionary journey. Really, they were the first fruits of his missionary endeavours. That's what he was doing. And now they're leaving his gospel behind and taking an entirely different path. And Paul feels shocked, sad, betrayed that his children in the faith would abandon him so quickly. But it's not just the personal hurt that he feels, it's the spiritual danger that they face that's making him emotional. This is not like swapping allegiance to a supermarket or a football team. This is like swapping your insulin for sugar pills. This is like swapping your life-giving water for poison. Paul is no mere teacher, and his message is no mere man, or it's not a man-made fable at all. You cannot change the message that Paul brings without dire consequences. You cannot ditch the messenger as though he was some two-bit delivery boy. Paul has his commission from God himself. He has the gospel from God. And he has only one master, God. So we're going to look at those three things together, the things that Paul has. And the first one is one commission. One commission. Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. <coughs> In order to protect the Galatians, his children really, in a way, 
It reminds them where his commission to be an apostle came from. Clearly there are other people who've come into the church, he calls them false brothers later on in the letter. (coughs) And they're suggesting that Paul's not really the real deal. They're suggesting that really he's not quite as good an apostle as as they are. He's not really coming in in God's name. (coughs) He was sent by men in Antioch, but they, oh they were sent by God to preach. But Paul was not commissioned by men. Paul was commissioned by God. He'll go into more detail in next week's passage, but straight away he wants them to remember his commission. And that it came straight from the lips of Jesus Christ, just like the other apostles. It was the risen Christ on the road to Damascus who said to him, Acts 26, 16 to 18, I think I've got it on the screen. Uh, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to do those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is what Jesus says to Paul. So Paul is not some second-rate man-appointed leader. (coughs) He's a holy apostle, sent by none other than Jesus Christ himself. And that means that the message that Paul brought them was not on Paul's own initiative. It's not like he just sort of got up one day and sort of thought, oh, what shall I do? Oh, I know, I'll go to Galatia. I've heard Asia Minor is nice this time of year. No, Paul was sent by God to the Gentile world. God wanted him to go there. His mission was not of human origin, but of divine origin. He was divinely commissioned as an apostle, apostle of the living Christ. And it's in that capacity that he's writing to them. Not just a brother, as he writes and introduces himself in other letters. Not a fellow slave, as again he introduces himself in other letters. Not a prisoner, but here he plays the divinely appointed apostle card. This is not take it or leave it advice that he's writing to them. This is a word on behalf of the living God who raised Jesus from the dead. A few years ago, uh, an MP got in trouble uh, for using parliamentary letter-headed paper to make a complaint about some shoes, Star Wars shoes, interestingly. There you go. But the message was clear. They sort of sent this letter saying, I'm very disappointed that you do not stock these Star Wars shoes. But they sent it on parliamentary headed letter paper. And the message was clear. Do you know who I am? I am an MP. You will take my complaint about shoes seriously. Even though I have nothing to do with parliamentary business. But here, Paul has sort of got his letterhead at the top. And here he is very much on the business as an apostle. Paul is saying here, you have to listen to this. These people are perverting the very gospel that I was sent to preach to you. And Paul just can't seem to help but slip in the gospel, even as he introduces himself. Do you see that? Verse 1, God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul is so about the gospel 
that he can't even help but sort of put it in his introduction. One commentator noted that these verses would like be what goes on the front of an envelope, you know, when you send the letter. And before he's even got into the letter on the front of the envelope, he's managed to get the gospel in. I wonder if you could manage that on the front of an envelope. But Jesus, he's telling us, died for our sin, to rescue us from sin, both its power and its penalty. And God the Father raised him from the dead on the third day, according to his plan and foreknowledge. And he tells us that God gets the glory for all this. This is the gospel that Paul brought them. But it's not the gospel that they're continuing in. They're beginning to turn aside from the gospel to believe a corrupted version of the gospel. But Paul is adamant that this is no gospel at all. And so our second point, one gospel. One gospel. Have a look at verses 6 to 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The Galatians are deserting the gospel Paul preached to them. And in so doing, they're deserting the one who called them, God himself. But it's not that they're deserting him for nothing. They're not becoming atheists or deconverting, as it's often called it today. They're deserting it for a religion that still has Jesus in it. Still has him dying on the cross. Still has many of the outward signs of Christianity. But at its heart is something entirely different. (coughs) They think they're advancing in the faith. But Paul is making it clear that they're drifting from the truth. Believing something entirely different. They're believing a distorted gospel. A warped gospel. A false gospel. People have come in and subtly changed the gospel that Paul has brought in. We'll see how more over the coming weeks. But a distorted gospel, says Paul, is no gospel at all. A distorted gospel won't save you. And that is why Paul uses some of the harshest language in the whole New Testament against people who would teach such things. He's astonished at the Galatians But he's righteously angry at these false teachers who are leading them astray. Let them be accursed, he says in verses 8 and 9. Let them be damned. The word that's used there, when it's used in the Old Testament, when it's translated into Greek, means something to be devoted to destruction. So other translations have, let him be condemned to destruction. May he be damned. Let him be under God's curse. It's very strong language for Paul. He's essentially saying, let them go to hell. That's how strong his words are. But in doing so, if you think about it, he's only echoing Jesus' words and sentiments and what Jesus taught. In Matthew 18, verse 6, he says, oh, this is Jesus speaking, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone (coughs) fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That was Jesus talking about false teaching. People who would lead believers away from the true gospel. 
We're talking here about wolves in sheep's clothing, lions in lamb's garden. You see, Paul, Paul prays for those who persecute him, if you think about it. But he downs those who would deceive people under his care. So it's not that he's a nasty person, but he takes it seriously. He understands the danger that these people face. And the danger so often is not attack from the outside, but compromise and confusion on the inside. Paul here is saying is that there is only one message that saves the gospel. And a false version of it does not save. Now the challenge for the church down the ages has always been working out how distorted the gospel must be before it becomes false. When does someone move from being a mistaken ally who we encourage to being a false teaching enemy to be confronted? And you see the problem is that there are genuine disagreements about theological issues between true believers who preach the true gospel. Within our church, within our group of churches, the FIEC, There'd be different opinions about the mode and age of baptism, spiritual gifts, church government, creation, the Sabbath, the way the Old and New Testament fit together, the extent of God's sovereignty and salvation. But there's been a tendency through history to hold these sorts of issues up, as though to have a different opinion in those areas is a distortion of the gospel. And as those who teach it then are false teachers. You know, our camp has the true gospel, theirs doesn't. We're the goodies, they're the baddies. But I want us to exercise caution here. The Bible leaves space for differences of opinion in some theological matters. Not all who teach something different in some areas are false teachers who should be accursed in Paul's words. That said, there's a danger we swing too far the other way. That no amount of change and no amount of difference amounts to a distortion of the gospel. And I think we sort of got our heads around the fact that there are cults, there are sects, there are crazy people out there who teach all sorts of things. But what Paul is talking about here is people within the boundaries of, of Christendom, so to speak. So for example, what if someone taught on baptism that water baptism actually saved you? So, you know, you, you actually, when you go through the water, that saves you and secures your place in heaven. Mm. Well, believe it or not, one of the largest denominations in the UK teaches that. What if uh, someone taught you that you must speak in tongues to be a true believer? There are churches in nearby cities that believe that. What if someone taught that Jesus was merely a great moral example? That if you're kind, you're a Christian. There are many, many churches that preach that message. But those things are damnable lies. We tend not to call them out, do we, so often, especially that last one, as we might call out the cults and, and different things like that, but they are lies. They're not true. And it's a version of that that's being taught by the false teachers in Galatia. Not so much being kind to get to heaven, but keeping the law, law-keeping. Do what the law says is their message. And It might sound sort of good and right in a way. You know, you can imagine the conversation, can't you? Well, Christians are those who do what the Bible says. And you want to say, well, yeah, amen. Christians are those who take the Bible seriously. Yes. Christians are those who don't chop bits out of God's word. Yes. And you're thinking, wow, these guys are good. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
So, Christians must be circumcised and become Jews if they're to be true believers. Uh, hang on a second. Uh, well, what does it say in Genesis 17? You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not, sorry, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. <coughs> Uh, and it also says that it's an everlasting covenant in verse 13 can you see how their argument would go you, you know we are the ones who want to keep the law aren't we didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5 even Matthew 5.18 for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished well don't we want to do what Jesus says do we want to be more like Jesus? Well, Jesus was circumcised. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus kept all the festivals and food laws and, and commands, didn't he? And you can see how it could throw this young church into confusion. It's easy to see how so many could have been hoodwinked, while all the while thinking these guys were really holy, and actually coming with a good message. After all, who would argue that we don't want to be more like Jesus? Who would argue that we don't want to do God's will? But what they were doing was subtly moving the message away from one that sought salvation by faith, faith in what Christ had done, towards salvation by what you or I do. They distorted the gospel to make it faith, yes, but faith plus circumcision, faith plus law-keeping. They'd taken these Christians from liberty to law-keeping. They were trying to pull them back into the Old Testament, the time before Jesus came. So that it's no longer the grace of Christ, as Paul calls it in verse 6, but slavery to the law. More on the specifics as we go through, because Paul will address those things as we go through. But what we need to realise now is that we're not at liberty to change the gospel, to distort it, to shape it as we would like. If someone else brings a different gospel other than the one that we find here in the Bible, we're to reject it. And it doesn't matter if an angel comes down from heaven with it, a la Joseph Smith of the Mormons or Muhammad of the Muslims. We're not to believe it. It wouldn't matter if we found another letter supposedly from Paul that taught something different. Paul says, even if I preach something different, you're not to believe it. Friends, even if I were to stand up here in this pulpit and bring you something other than the gospel of grace, then you are not to believe me. There are plenty of preachers who have started off with the message and then strayed off into something else. Paul does not put himself beyond that happening. He tells them not to believe him if he preaches something else. Well, friends, if I ever preach to you a false gospel, please, please, please stand up and rebuke me. Don't let me damn people to hell with a false message. Now, I should say, that doesn't mean if I have an off week, you know, everybody stands up for, you know, if I misquote a Bible verse, or you just happen to disagree with me on an issue. But if I come to you with something other than the gospel of grace, the one that tells of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age, who was raised from the dead, on the third day, who will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, who saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. 
If I bring you a message contrary to that, then friends, I'm in that category of people who should be accursed. But having that position will not win us friends. So finally, we have one master, verse 10. Let me read it to you again. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's opponents were obviously trying to make out that Paul was a people pleaser. He didn't bring you the full message, he just sort of gave you an easy gospel. One that didn't involve the graft of keeping the law or or the pain of circumcision. But Paul's statements show that he is no people pleaser. He denounces his opponents, these false teachers, these false brothers, in the strongest of terms. Paul does want to please, but it's not people that he wants to please. It's Christ, his master. That's the one he wants to please. We said at the beginning that Paul didn't introduce himself as a servant of Christ at the beginning of the letter. But he tells us here that's still his identity. Now our translation waters down that phrase a little. The phrase is literally that he is a slave of Christ. So if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. What he's saying there is that claims that there are only one gospel that saves. Claims that those who teach something different are false teachers. Those things are not people-pleasing things, are they? They're virtually guaranteed to make you unpopular. But in the end, it's not the opinion of the masses that counts. It's not the opinion of crowds that we seek. Actually, really, the approval that we seek is just of one person, God. And Paul knew that. He knew that that was the one he was seeking to please. And we need to remember that too. We have one master. And at the end of the day, it's not popularity. So often we keep quiet about things for fear of losing face with others, don't we? And we're called to seek God's face. Are we people pleasers or God pleasers? Because Paul says the two are incompatible. You only have one master in the end. Now I'm not suggesting here that we go around picketing other churches or places of worship. I'm not suggesting that we go around with sandwich boards denouncing other people on them. But it means that we need to take into account as individuals and as a church that not everyone who claims the mantle Christian or preacher actually preaches the gospel, the real one. And that will have an effect on what we do. It means as a church we have to be careful who we work with and who we stand with. Many inter-church organisations have so low a level of entry requirements that there will be groups within them that adhere to false teaching. It's telling here that the Galatians, that the false teachers here, would probably be able to join most ecumenical organisations that are around today, even though Paul counts them as accursed and troublers of the church. That said... Cooperation between true churches that that preach the gospel is encouraged in the Bible. So it's not saying that we cut ourselves off completely. It's not about just trying to, you know, be on your own little corner. Actually, there is a wider church that we work with, but we need to be careful who we work with. 
And it also means as individuals, sometimes we'll have to tell people that what they believe is wrong. Both those who are being led astray and those leading astray. Paul is firm with the Galatians. He's clearly emotional that they're abandoning his gospel. But his goal, first and foremost, is to win them back. He's actually writing this because he wants them to come back in. He's strong about the false teachers because he wants to make it really clear to the Galatians that they are wrong. You can't read this letter and think that Paul sort of wants a halfway house, you know, sort of come to me back a bit, but sort of go with these other teachers a bit. With the false teachers themselves, though, I think we can see from other scriptures, it depends on context as to how we treat them. Here, they are those who are troubling his spiritual children. And so Paul almost pounces like a lioness defending her cubs. But when he's writing to Timothy, he writes that he's to correct his opponents with gentleness, praying for them to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. I think the closest example I've ever had with this is uh, conversations with Mormon missionaries. Now, I normally I, I, I correct with gentleness, I ask questions, I seek to be polite. <coughs> But one time they were trying to convert a younger Christian friend of mine, and the friend asked me to meet up with him and with the missionaries as well, uh, sort of all together, so I took him up on it. And I met with him, and I met with them. But my goal in that conversation was very much exposing the folly of what the Mormon missionaries were teaching. I was still polite, but my goal was to let my friend sort of see me tear down their arguments. And that seems to be what Paul is doing with this letter. He's not trying to win friends, but he is trying to win the Galatians back to the gospel, since that was his commission from Christ. He's being straight talking, because that's what they need to hear. He's calling false teaching, false teaching, because that's what it is, whether we are straight talking Yorkshiremen or not. So we need to speak plainly about these things, lovingly, but firmly. And not to please people, but to please our Heavenly Father, our one Master. Well, let's pray that God gives us the strength <coughs> to do that. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you for this letter that we've been able to read together. Father, pray that we might not use it as an excuse to be nasty, but Father, pray that we might uh, use this as fuel to love others and to speak to others of the truth. Father, we do pray that you would help us to help others who are trapped in false teaching. Father, pray that you'd help us to do it lovingly and gently to them. And Father, pray that you might rescue people uh, from the, the clutches of false teachers and bring them back to the true gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.